for those of you to make sure you, you're in the place you want to be, this is the Sunstone uh, Symposium in Seattle. If this was not your intent to be at Sunstone, uh, you may want, yeah, welcome anyway. Absolutely, you're always welcome. Um, my name is John DeLynn. I'm from uh, Logan, Utah. And um, they tell me that I'm the executive director of Sunstone. Uh, I, I was voted uh, into that position uh, in August, I guess, or sometime close uh, thereabouts. Uh, I actually spent seven years here uh, in Seattle living in Kohani when I worked for Microsoft. So it's fun to be back. And this is my second time to Sunstone, Seattle. My, uh, my interest in Mormon studies began as I was leaving Seattle, so uh, I didn't even know that Sunstone was going on during the seven years uh, I lived here. How many of you have been here uh, to the symposium before? And how many of you are new first-timers? Okay, well, uh, well, you're all very welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, I want to begin with a few disclaimers. Um, uh, you know, implicit in the question tonight is, uh, that, that uh, some people may want to stay, but uh, I just want to make it clear that I, I don't want to make the, the, the uh, sort of the assumption that staying is right for everyone. I get a lot of heat for that uh, as I've given the speech a few times because there are people who just say the church doesn't work for them and they don't want to feel like they're being judged for their decision to leave. And so that's not uh, what this is all about. Um, this is just about, most importantly, what I found with the 300 or 400 people I've counseled over the past few years is that there are some people who feel trapped um, and they, they don't have a vocabulary and they don't know of options available to them when, when they hit their crisis of faith. And so this is just about providing people with options to consider, not for telling everyone that, that they should, should stay. Um, it's also very important that while we are exploring together alternative approaches to membership, uh, this isn't about advocating slothfulness of disobedience or, or whatever. Uh, again, I just feel like I have to make, make certain of that. I'm not advocating any lifestyle is the one that everyone should, should partake in. Um, I'm just saying that if your choice is leaving all together and abandoning or finding some middle ground, Let's explore that middle ground and the possibilities there. But um, it's not about trying to, to win people over to, to the less lower degrees of, uh, of um, obedience. And this is probably, uh, trying to be funny here, but, uh, you know, this is probably the most important thing of all. You know, I'm only 38 years old. I've, I've started my crisis, oh, let's say seven years ago. Uh, I have a 12-year-old and, and four, three other young kids. I'm learning as I go. Obviously, I don't have to tell you that um, I don't have all the answers, uh, but but I just I, I, I do have the benefit of having counseled with about three to four hundred people over the past two or three years who are in this situation. So I've been able to sort of absorb from them a lot. So consider this just a work in progress of just sharing me with you, and then at the end, you with me, how we might uh, you know approach things. But don't look at uh, this as anything other than an exploration. Um, I guess I'll start with my story. Um, I'm, my mom tells me I'm a fifth-generation Mormon. Uh, I'm a Parkinson and a Benson through my mom, so I go back to Ezra T. Benson and uh, Samuel Rose Parkinson. Uh, I, I was raised um, in Katy, Texas, 
which is a suburb outside of Houston. My claim to fame is uh, I went to high school with Renee Zellweger. <laughs> and uh, we actually um, went out a little bit. And, uh, when she called... What's that? I know, it was more than clean. Um, so was she. She was a good girl. Um, she did call me when I was a senior at BYU and um, tell me she was going to be an actress. And I laughed. Um, not in a mean way, but, you know, it's, it was sweet old Renee, right? I just, I, I couldn't fathom Renee is this Hollywood actress, but she sure showed me. Um, but uh, I, uh, I, I brought her to a steak dance once, by the way. Um, it was a New Year's Eve dance, and it was a dress-up thing. So I was wearing suit and tie, and she was wearing this beautiful velvet dress. And she was a petite girl, very modest, but I, I didn't think about it. And it was, sleeve, it was sleeveless. You know, it kind of went like that, right? It wasn't immodest, but, um, but they ended up telling her she had to go home. <laughs> so she cried the way home. And uh, I was like, no, wait, she's not a member, you know? And they're like, nope, sorry, the girls are going to be embarrassed. And so that was Renee's um, exposure to the church. <laughs> And uh, I, I don't tell you that to skewer the church because these were good people. But, you know, it's something to think about um, as we think about how to maintain our standards. We've got to make sure. But anyway, um, I definitely had a very conservative theological and doctrinal uh, education within the church. My parents were divorced at a quite young age uh, after being married in the temple for 27 years. Um, I was the youngest of four. And uh, I clung to the church as my lifeline. Um, so uh, that was very hard, but the church was everything to me. And uh, I would get myself up for seminary, and, you know, that was at 5 o'clock because seminary started at 6.15, and I would go to church when my parents weren't even there. You know, the church was a seminary, regional seminary scripture chase champion and uh, um, seminary president, and, you know, the church was everything. Uh, I even DJed the state dances, and sometimes the regional dances. Um, but most importantly, I had a seminary teacher named Lawrence Layton, who was extremely uh, conservative and devout. A very sweet man, not a harsh or a mean man, but very uh, sort of of the Bruce R. McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith cloth. And to just give you a couple examples of how he would teach seminary, he once uh, decided that he wanted to illustrate uh, the crucifixion of Christ in the New Testament year. And um, so he actually brought into class a life-size cross, um, and he asked me to play Jesus. And so he, uh, he, he, we rehearsed this beforehand, but he put the, cro- he put the nail between my, my fingers, and he asked me to writhe in pain as he would nail the, the nails into the cross. <laughs> So that was, but, but um, and another example, which is actually quite sort of a little more jarring. Um, <laughs> uh, once he, um, once he uh, wanted to illustrate, uh, let, he was without sin cast the first stone, and so he cleared out, he cleared out all the chairs from uh, from the area where he normally taught, and he laid down four big rocks. And he said, um, I'm not a perfect man. I try my hardest, but I know that I've offended at least some of you here during the three years I've been seminary teacher. And so I just want to beg for your forgiveness. 
and offer you the, the chance to extol justice upon me for my sins. And he knelt down in front of us and began weeping uncontrollably and ended up like in a fetal position. And this was not some man who was a kook. This was a very spiritual, righteous, good man <laughs> who just believed passionately in his faith and uh, um, felt like uh, he wanted... I don't know what, what he was thinking, but um, <laughs> it definitely stuck with me. And uh, it was a good object lesson in terms of uh, having me remember it and feel it. Uh, he, I was also taught that blacks were less dying in the pre-existence, and that's, you know, I was taught the Bruce R. McConkie Mormon doctrine sort of theology as, as fact. And I, didn't, I wasn't exposed to Mormon studies at all back in the 80s, and I didn't have anyone to talk to about this. So I just absorbed it all as valid and, and perfectly true. And so my worldview was the Bruce R. McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith worldview through up to my mission. And there was no deviating from that. Served a mission in Guatemala. Uh, was married in the Washington, D.C. temple. Uh, was morally clean. Never tried alcohol, tobacco, any of that stuff, uh, um, even though I had lots of chances. Um, uh, I definitely aspired to high-level church positions. And... Uh, um, and I lived my life uh, until I was living here in Seattle and was called as an early morning seminary teacher back around 2000. And was uh, uh, the Book of Mormon was the first year. That was the year 9-11 happened, so that was 2001. Second year was Doctrine and Covenants. And um, I thought I knew I knew about Sunstone at BYU, but I, I felt like it was too fringy and too controversial. So I canceled my subscription after just a year or so. And I... You know, didn't even think about Sunstone really until uh, after my crisis of faith. Um, but I thought I knew the controversies of church history. I just, oh yeah, you know, there's polygamy and there's some Mason thing. And I kind of felt like I knew this edgy, dark, you know, part of church history. But then I was called um, as a seminary teacher and I started studying church history for the first time. And I started reading, uh, I started reading church manuals and the seminary manual. And I was surprised at church history in the fullness of times, the, the Institute manual, and that just really piqued my interest. So I started reading um, Leonard Arrington, and uh, that really piqued my interest. And so then I started reading um, Richard Bushman, uh, and then I started reading uh, Michael Quinn, and then I started reading Von Brody. And within, you know, six months, uh, I, I turned to my wife and said, this church isn't what it claims to be. And, you know, there were multiple issues that in 32 years of church education, I personally had never heard of these. Now, I know people who were taught this stuff when they were nine years old. And they tell me, what was wrong with you? you I, I knew about Pete Stones when I was eight. And I know that there are people that way. But, but for me, in 32 years of church education, I never knew about the Pete Stone and the hat and the treasure digging and the Bookmore translation. I never knew about the credibility issues with the three innate witnesses. I never knew about the multiple first vision stories and the sort of how that founding narrative changed a bit over time. Never knew about Book of Mormon historicity issues or the papyri of Book of Abraham. I never knew Joseph Smith had 30 plus wives. I, I wasn't even sure if he was a polygamist. I thought he might be, but I didn't know anything about it, let alone the polyandry stuff. I didn't know about post-manifesto polygamy, um, nor that it was taught as a requirement for exaltation by all the major prophets uh, or, or the early major prophets. I didn't, I, I didn't know the depth of the connections between the Masonic temple ceremony and our temple ceremony. Um, I didn't even know the basics of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. In fact, I, I, I'd heard about it, two massacres, Hans Mill and, and 
Mountain Meadows, and I wanted to learn about both. And I found it odd that Hans Mill was in the seminary manual and discussed very strongly, but Mountain Meadows wasn't there. And I wondered what the difference was between the two massacres. And now I know that one was against us and one was by us. It made sense, but I wondered why they weren't both there. Um, uh, I didn't know anything until this year about the extent of female participation in priesthood ordinances, the washings and anointings they did before childbirth, the laying out of hands that they were encouraged to do by prophets to their husbands, to their children, etc. I had no idea that that had continued into the early 1900s. and, you know, the racist statements, I didn't know about those, and that the church opposed the civil rights movement and hated Martin Luther King, or at least some of the leaders did. Um, and when I learned all this stuff, I just, it was like my world fell apart. I felt like I was devastated. I just felt like deceived, disappointed, angry, and I felt like it was all a fraud. And I just turned to my wife and I said, well, we got to leave. And she cried. Um, uh, and then she said, Okay. That was a really, you know, you would expect a fight. You would expect opposition. You would expect a five-year period of dissonance within the marriage. But she just said, I'll put this in your hands. And being a fifth-generation Mormon, I had to just sort of pause and say, okay, wow. I wasn't expecting that. And so thankfully, I, um, I started reading uh, uh, articles by Eugene England. I started reading stuff from T. Edgar Lyon and Lowell Benyon. I started reading uh, stuff from William Bradshaw and Laurel Thatcher Ulrich uh, and others. And in, in, in effect, Sunstone gave me a, a rebirth of a, of a faith and a testimony and a framework. And so I really do owe Sunstone and Dialogue sort of uh, for being there for me at a very important time where I was willing to throw the whole thing away and I would have done it um, without much, you know, hesitance if I hadn't have found a framework to piece that together. Uh, but more importantly, once I started podcasting and blogging, I realized that I wasn't alone, not by a long shot. So I moved to, left Microsoft, moved to Logan, went and met Dan, started doing a podcast and a blog. And within a very short amount of time, I started getting around three emails a week from people all over the world. Um, and now that I've been doing this two or three years, I've received, you know, if you do the math, that plus the people who've come to see me in Logan, several hundred people I've counseled with. And this is an example of the type of email they get. Dear John, for now I will let you know that I'm active but disillusioned somewhat. I used to be a hobby apologist but could no longer defend what became undefendable. I'm currently serving as the bishop of the very um, interesting ward. And I'm four years and nine months into that call. It was about two and a half years ago that when I concluded, much to my dismay, that things were really not as what I had always believed I had a strong and abiding testimony of. It has been very difficult to come to that point while serving as a bishop. But still I maintain my faith in God and Christ and much of what I've come to love from the LDS Church. This is a bit of an extreme example because he's serving as a bishop right now. Um, but fathers, mothers, grandparents, missionaries, uh, high school kids... Um, from every country. And I've been able to distill over the past several years what the main causes of people losing their faith are. I always had a church history-centric point of view because that was what was hard for me. But it turns out that that's just one dynamic. Um, There are many people who acted on Moroni's promise and they just didn't get the witness they were told they were going to receive in the way that they were sort of told they were to receive it. 
and over time that becomes a problem. Um, there are many people who realize uh, that they've been taught to co- conflate emotion with the Holy Ghost, and they have most of their emotional experiences in their formative years growing up in the church, and they associate that with the church and the testimony. But then, like me, I had an emotional, spiritual experience watching the Muppet movie once. <laughs> and you'd think that'd be a silly thing, but I was in high school, and I said, why, why am I feeling as edified by the Muppet movie as I was in General Conference? And I said, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> right. It is true. Um, many people travel. They, you know, they say that travel is, is one of the cures of prejudice. I think Mark Twain said that. But, um, you know, you, meet, you, you don't have to spend much time traveling to meet some brilliantly inspirational people who are much superior not only to yourself, but to even some of the best LDS people you know. And when that happens... It's one thing to sort of say, well, you know, they're an exception to those of us who are chosen. But when you meet enough of them, you start saying, man, do I really want to call them Gentiles and myself, you know, chosen? And what does it mean if they can reach this level of enlightenment without the gospel or the true gospel? And you start wondering whether maybe you don't have a a monopoly on truth and enlightenment. Church history is one. Doing the numbers is, is a very common one. They simply do the math and they realize that Active members of the LDS Church is less than one half of one percent of the world's population, and you want to believe in a fair and loving God that's going to give. You know, if the purpose of this life is to come here and to get these ordinances and to have this experience, and yet less than one half of one percent of the world's population ever really get that chance uh, in, a, in any reasonable way, you start wondering what what does that say about God and this plan and how much sense it makes. So there's some people who struggle there. Um, there are many who feel marginalized, whether they're gay or they're single or they're divorced or whatever the case may be. Um, some have been abused within the context of the church. And one of the most common causes I'm finding is just people aren't being edified in church. They are bored. They don't feel challenged. They feel like it's pablum, uh 24 by 7. Um, and that's a hard thing for the church because... The church is trying to please a lot of people, and it's hard to have one program that pleases all types of people at all ages and all situations. So I have empathy. I don't, I don't judge the church in any way for that. Um, and then um, the last thing I have to say is that one of the hardest things about the dilemma of, the, of people like this, you would think that these people, you know, as they're judged by their family and friends and community, are the weakest and the least righteous and the least valiant of all the members because they've become disaffected. But that hasn't been my experience. My experience is that, that a lot of these people um, hit this crisis not because they care too little, but because they care too much. It's just been my experience. I don't want to glorify them or us, but it certainly hasn't been because they had some sin they wanted to justify or were weak or feeble. It was more because of, of some of these other reasons. And so that's very painful to feel like you're doing something that's true to yourself and honest and everyone else looks at you as dishonest and uh, weak and feeble. So, um, so when someone goes through this crisis, there are a few options for them. One is just to be the innocent. Let's talk about this in Sunday school. Look what I read the other day. You know, come on. Did anybody read this? You know, does anybody have any... You know, and you hear the crickets chirping, and 
And, you know, and sometimes that leads to frustration where you start being the person who wants to shock and traumatize everybody. And that just is all unhappiness and a road towards misery. Um, but that's one, you know, and, and I even, uh, some of you have my bishop. I had this crisis here in Issaquah, and I tried to talk to my bishop about it. And I did the same thing when I went to Logan. And a lot of times your bishops just kind of go, you know, you start talking about peep stones and polyandry, and the bishops are like, hmm, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't really help you, you know. And they're not equipped. And, and my bishop in, in, in Logan actually said to me, um, I don't consider myself, in, you know, invulnerable. I don't consider myself um, impervious to temptations. I value my testimony, but the things that you might share with me might really damage that. And so if it's okay with you, I'd rather we not talk about these things. <laughs> and he did it in a loving way. He was not mean. He was, he was just saying, I'm not equipped to talk to you. And I, I can tell you that most bishops are likely in this scenario. They haven't been trained, and there isn't training, and it's not their fault. It's just um, where they are. So trying to talk to the ward community usually isn't very successful, unless you're in a very unique ward. And there are some of those. Um, a second thing you do is you try and talk to loved ones. Uh, and unless your parents or siblings or close people to you have been through things like this, you're in the much same boat. But not only that, as it is with bishops, you, you risk jeopardizing relationships. You risk your standing in the ward. You risk your marriage. You risk your relationship with your children or with your parents or your standing in the community. If you live in the, in, in the Utah area, you sometimes can, can risk your job. And so um, some people feel like they can't talk to anybody. And, and sometimes they try and, and they can't. And so the third thing that often people do, and sometimes they skip one and two and just go straightly to this option, and that's just feeling completely isolated and depressed. And I can't tell you how many emails I get from people who listen to my podcast and they say, I thought I was the only one in the church who felt these things because they have no one that they can talk to. And that's, I think, the saddest and most desperate place of all. Um, so um, I'll, I'll illustrate it with one more, uh, one more story. Mr. Delaney, one more email I got. Mr. Delaney came across your website by accident, but I found something that I have been searching for for a long time. I've been very naive in my faith with what I've been taught. In the last year, I started to realize that my testimony, the testimony that I had held so very closely to my soul, was being attacked by what looked and acted like truth, and that contradicted what I was taught. I began to feel betrayed. My immediate reaction was one of going to my close friends and family. All that did was make my relationship with them strain to a new high. I realized I was now on an island all by myself, no one to talk to or pull from. And then something happened just recently. The state president called me to the state high council. Very reluctantly, I accepted the call. So here I am as a member of a state high council with serious issues. I've entered a very dark place. I refer to it as dark because... What I believe was light now seems dark. And so, you know, these emails start piling up. And probably one of the most fundamental teachings that, that, that causes this crisis is this notion that's often shared across the general conference pulpit, which is that the church is either exactly what it claims to be or the biggest fraud ever perpetrated upon mankind. And if you're pushed into that sort of binary polar uh, polarized sort of paradigm, you're sort of encouraged to either accept it lock, stock, and barrel wholesale or to get the heck out. 
Um, the other scripture, and I'm paraphrasing here, I would that you be either hot or cold, but if you are lukewarm, then I will spew thee out of my mouth. And who wants to be spewed, right? <laughs> so if you can't be hot and you can't be lukewarm, you know, what's your option? And your option is an activity or, better yet, or worse yet, resignation. And if you go to the Internet, if you go to exmormon.org, you'll find that this option is being uh, embraced more and more commonly. There are even websites dedicated to how to expedite most efficiently your resignation process. They give you a form letter. They offer legal services to challenge the church ecclesiastical leaders if they don't expedite and if they harass you in any way. Um, so uh, this is sort of the, the option that many people are turning to now because they don't feel like they have another option. It's sort of like crossing the Rubicon, you know, burning the bridges, and then writing the exit letter. And you don't just send your exit letter to the church, by the way. Most of these people send it to their parents and their siblings and their bishop and their ward members, and, um, and it's quite damaging. I've seen this in my own ward in, in Logan. Um, and, you know, it's possible that, that it's an it's a act of honor and integrity to resign. And some of you have made that choice, and I don't disparage that as lacking honor. Um, uh, in fact, I think it can be a very noble choice. Um, but what I will also say is that when you get into this mode, sometimes you can have an inflated sense of importance and of relevance in what you're going through. And um, you, you can even develop in your mind this notion of, I'm going to let everybody know these problems. I'm going to resign. It's going to send a shockwave through my family and the community. And people will be disturbed. And the ward will be disturbed. And they'll all come ask me what happened. And we'll all rally together. And it will be the strong thing where my family comes with me and, and members of the community come with me. And, you know, we'll be seeking justice. And maybe we'll all march onto the Temple Square headquarters and we'll nail our 95 theses onto the wall of the tabernacle and we'll go to the prophet and we'll say, you need to change and you need to be honest and, you know, you get this inflated sense of wanting to bring a lot of people with you. And I, I, I mention that because that's not always uh, how, it, how it happens. Uh, that's not, you know, you, you want to think that people are going to rally to your side and that you're going to change the world. Um, but that's not that's not always that's not always how it ends up. And so I have a little um, I have a little film clip that I want to show you, which sort of illustrates a bit. Has anybody seen this movie? Does anybody know what movie this is? Okay, it's Elizabeth II, the HBO showing of Elizabeth II. And this man was a this man who you're about to see was a close confidant of the queen. He sat on her central board, ruling the Queen of England. This is Elizabeth I. Sorry, not Elizabeth II. And, um, but then he decided he didn't like another guy on the council, that the queen was listening to him too much. And so he goes out and gets some friends together, starts this sort of anti-queen society that's trying not to overthrow the queen, but this man that's in her council. And they decide that, that they have enough townspeople on their side that they're going to storm the walls of, of the castle and demand that the queen listen to him uh, and, and get rid of this guy. And this is sort of how it all shapes up.
more often how <laughs> that scenario ends up. Um, and so you need to be aware of the risks of this approach. Um, it's devastating. People are losing their spouses, their children, their uh, affiliation with their parents, their community. Um, it's, it's not a pleasant deal. And, um, you know, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to make light of it, but... Um, you know, it's not, it's not the way, it doesn't turn out the way you think. And so um, there, are many, there are many downsides to this type of public resignation. Um, um, first of all, uh, it's a very, it's, you don't feel it at the time. You feel like your pain is what everybody should be feeling. That's how I felt. I feel like everybody should be feeling the pain that I'm feeling. Everyone in my family, everyone in my ward, everyone in my community, your pain needs to be my pain now. But that turns out to be a very selfish and narcissistic approach. Just because you care about those things doesn't mean that they do or are in a place to even be able to start understanding those things. Um, and if they had come to you five years ago when you were in your phase of zealotry, how receptive would you have been uh, to someone sharing these same messages? And so you have to realize that, you know, blasting this out all over the world and the Internet, like I wanted to do, wasn't always the right approach. Um, there's also a, a downward spiral of cynicism, bitterness, and anger that comes from sort of being angry with your tradition and then storming out and leaving it. Um, you end up gravitating towards those who have done the same. You start circling yourself with people like that. Um, and... Uh, it's just not very uh, positive. There was once uh, someone asked the Dalai Lama, I'm not happy with my church, I want to be a Buddhist. And he said something interesting. He said, don't come to Buddhism with baggage from your faith. Stay in your faith, make it work, or at least reconcile it to your place of peace. 
Because if you come to Buddhism with your anger, I guarantee you within three to five years, you're going to be disillusioned and angry at Buddhism. And then you're just going to move on to the next thing. And that's uh, often <laughs> what, I've, what I've found. Um, there's a high risk of alienation from everyone. It can be very disruptive to children and marriages. Important decisions, life decisions, should rarely be made from a place of anger and pure emotion. That's just a good rule. Um, would you sell your car or a house without having a replacement? Um, I, I doubt you would, you would question in many instances the value of the church in your life up until that point. Um, maybe some of you would, but uh, for me, the church was so important, I wasn't just going to throw it all away, um, even though I was tempted. And if you do do the sort of crossing the Rubicon, burning the, burning the boats, you have very little room to change your mind later because you force yourself into this public display of disaffection that then you sort of are going to feel ashamed like your ego's damaged if you then go back on what you did so publicly. And so all sorts of reasons that's not a good idea. Um, I'll show you another story. There's this, uh, this couple that emailed me a couple uh, years ago and said, I found your podcast. I love it, and um, it's helping us work through some issues. And then about a year after that, they emailed me and said, I don't want anything to do with the church anymore. We've joined another church, and we're done. Sorry, we're, it's over. We're not coming back. We're happy. And they really thought they were done. And then I get this email just this week. We continue to attend the local neighborhood church, which is fine except for the times that I miss being a Mormon. Uh, do you know what I mean? I sometimes wonder if I can ever shake it or if I'm supposed to. It's in my blood to a certain extent. I think it's an emotional reaction, but it is real, and I have to work through it. I would love to know how you are hanging in with the church. Is it working? I try to envision it and find that there is so much I wouldn't be able to do and say that my ward would want me to do and say. I don't know how I would make it work when I can't tell the party line. But I love many things about Mormonism. This is my dilemma. So if you think you're leaving it, you may not be. You may just, it may just be a matter of years before you're back pining for it and wishing you could come back. Um, so an another point I have to say is that anger is much more damaging, in my opinion, as sort of a lifestyle than any abusive situation you think uh, that's being inflicted upon you at church if it's just the typical closed-minded members or, you know, boring lessons or dogmatic, deceiving sort of discourse. Um, uh, as hard as those may seem to you, choosing a life filled with anger and rage is much more cancerous uh, as an alternative. And I've seen it destroy people. And so uh, regardless of whether you choose to come back, I strongly encourage people to avoid negative, critical, intolerant people, not to seek out people who have experienced the disaffection that you have and have remained in an angry and a, and a furious place because they're going to keep you and drive you into a place that I promise you will be worse in almost all instances than what you're experiencing as, as a member. Um, this is a hard concept that I want to convey because I, I don't want to glorify this stage. But if any of you have studied Fowler's stages of faith, you'll know that every phase is a good phase. Every stage is a healthy phase. And it turns out that this stage that many of you might be going through or have gone through is a healthy stage. Um, and in many ways, if you can face the challenge and try to endure it, you, you can experience deeper levels of enlightenment, empathy, and understanding than you would have ever experienced as, let's say, a level three dogmatic conservative Mormon. 
Um, and so uh, one of the things I like to do uh, in these little presentations is share a little bit of music because I believe music sometimes can help, uh, um, you know, help get some points across. And so if you'll forgive me, I will share with you uh, a song by a man named David Wilcox called I Had to Let It Go. And think about um, if any of you have experienced this, this path, this song sort of captivates it a bit. But also the joy that can come on the other side uh, of the trauma.
couple weeks ago, I, entered a, I interviewed a BYU student um, for my podcast named John Kovalenko. Um, and uh, he's a BYU student, but he discovered in high school, Provo High School, that he had a same-sex attraction. And um, BYU was the last place that he ever thought he was going to end up. And, in fact, he, he went to school in southern Utah for his first couple years of college, and he explored his sexuality um, and tried to come to understand it. And as he was ready to throw the church away completely, he uh, um, decided he was going to read the Book of Mormon one last time. And his parents were out of the church. I don't think his mom had ever been a member, and his dad had been excommunicated, I think, twice. Um, and uh, so he read the Book of Mormon, and much to his surprise, he received an undeniable witness as to his truthfulness for him. Uh, and so he... Um, Reconciled and came to BYU, and he's at BYU today. Is an openly struggling uh, with a same-sex attraction, but but openly talking about it. And his video interviews up on YouTube if you want to go listen to it. But he told me something very interesting in that interview when I asked him whether the church in any way, John Kovalenko. Um, when when I asked him whether the church was missing out by having people of same-sex attraction in full fellowship. He said, absolutely, because in my experience, because of not only because of who people with same-sex attractions are and their, their dispositions, but because of what they've been through, they're in a unique position uh, to display love and compassion and understanding that, that many of us may not uh, have a chance to get to because of the adversity that they experience. And what I am, am asking you to consider is that if you feel desperate and alone, and hopeless in this state that there's hope and and sunshine and happiness on the other side if you can do the work to move on from the disappointment and the disillusionment and the anger and get to that place of understanding and empathy and love if you can do that then you can become a savior on Mount Zion to people who are in pain and struggling in a way that very few other people would ever have the chance to be and so um, I want to I put this position in state as an opportunity for you, not as a curse or some type of, of, of condition. And so I say embrace this stage. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't feel desperate about it. Look at it as a challenge, um, as Bonner Ritchie likes to talk about. You know, uh, the opposite of a small truth is a lie, but the opposite of a, of a large truth is another large truth. And transcendence comes through reconciling paradox. And if you can look at the church and its imperfection and also its beauty and find a way to reconcile those two into something that's worth embracing, you can achieve a level of enlightenment and transcendence that can be a blessing to yourself and to the people around you. So that leads me to the question of why stay, um, because that case needs to be made. There are lots of practical reasons to stay in the church. Um, It's a great place to reinforce spirituality in a world where spirituality is easily forgotten. Um, in many cases, it is your identity and your culture uh, or your tribe. And it's not easy to, you know, for a Jew to unjew themselves. Um, and it's not easy for a Mormon to unmormon themselves, no matter how much they want to, no matter how much they try. In my experience, they almost always keep coming back and at an absolute minimum, always miss their affiliation with the church, at least on some level. Um, it's a wonderful place to establish community to raise your family and children if you can have the right approach to it.
It's a great place to encourage clean living, which is good for anybody. Um, there's undeniable good in the church if you're open and willing to see that. No matter how discouraged you might be about what gets said over the pulpit general conference sometimes, if you're objective and look at what's going on in wards and stakes and missions and, uh, and uh, uh, humanitarian efforts, there's undeniable, amazing amounts of good going there. Um, for many of us, it ends up becoming the best there is. I know lots of people who become Episcopalian or Unitarian, and uh, I don't disparage that, and some of you are Unitarian, uh, um, but I have met many people who end up becoming as disaffected and disenchanted with whatever faith they run to as they were. And then they end up hopping and hopping and hopping until they unravel and, and they wish they could come back. And so uh, I'm not saying you can't find joy in other faiths, but I am saying that in many cases it ends up being uh, the best there is for people like us, especially if you're raised in the tradition. There's so much of the doctrine that's beautiful. Um, there's this challenge of making it better. If all the people who struggle with the imperfections abandon it, then who's going to stick around and help make it better? Um, and, and sometimes improvement happens one person at a time. Uh, many people at Sunstone have taught this notion that the church is a place to serve and be served. I believe that comes from Eugene England. Um, and in my opinion, the hymns rock. <laughs> For me. Okay. Some people disagree with that. I love it. And so, you know, do you throw the baby out with the bathwater? It's a fair analogy. Yes, you're frustrated. Yes, you're in pain. Yes, you see deception. Yes, you see uh, boredom. Or yes, you see uh, dysfunction. But do you, do you really throw away um, the baby with the bathwater? I'm not saying that you can't find enlightenment outside of the church or the Mormons have a monopoly on anything. In fact, I've tried to tell you the opposite. And I'm not saying that everyone should stay and that all who leave will find misery. But what I am saying is that replacing all these things is perhaps possible. In other words, all these great things that I tried to show here. Trying to reconstruct these things in your own life is possible. But I would submit that it's very difficult. And the analogy that I like to use is the homeschooling analogy. Have you ever met uh, some parents? How many of you are disaffected or, or angry at the school, the public education system today? Okay. How many of you still send your kids there anyway? Okay. How many of you have tried homeschooling? Okay. How many of you are still homeschooling? Well, they grow up. <laughs> okay, they grow up. Well, homeschooling can be an amazingly positive, productive thing. Um, and it can really work for people. But I've met a lot of people who didn't realize what they were taking on. And it ends up being sometimes very complex and difficult um, and much more overwhelming than they ever thought. And uh, it turns out that sometimes being educated in how to be a teacher is a helpful thing. And, and sometimes life gets so busy. So I would submit that trying to reconstruct all the benefits that you can get from award affiliation is a challenging thing that isn't to be seen as, a, as, as something to be taken lightly. But what that often requires you to do is rethink the role of religion. Um, I really like this quote by a man whose name I won't even try to pronounce. Dan, do you want to pronounce his last name? What? Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda. Religion is a realization. Not talk, not doctrine, nor theories, however beautiful these may be. Religion is being and becoming, not hearing and acknowledging. It is not an intellectual ascent. In fact, it's almost in many ways the opposite of an intellectual ascent. But the transformation of one's whole life. If you come to church expecting to hear the pure, unadulterated voice of God through his servants, 
that may be an unrealistic expectation. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes you may get that. But you're not always going to get that. Um, but if you look at church as, in Eugene England's case, this, you know, why the church is as true as the gospel, if you look at it as a laboratory, if you look at church as a laboratory to make you saintly, in many ways, because of the adversity that you have to face and the people that you have to deal with and associating with people that you otherwise would never choose to associate with, how else are you going to develop Christ-like love, patience, and tolerance? And so it's something worth thinking about um, if you are sincerely seeking transcendence in a higher level of being. Um, now, while, while you should remain open to literal truths taught in the gospel and in the church, um, I would encourage you not to minimize the importance of myth and metaphor. So let's say that you struggle with the historicity of the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham. Or let's say that you struggle with everything coming out of the mouth of the general authorities as being doctrine all the time. Or God is an anthropomorphic being or an atonement that satisfies not only everyone in this world that everyone's ever lived, plus all the other worlds. If you struggle with the literalness of some of these teachings, that doesn't mean that the whole thing is garbage and should be thrown away. There's immense value in metaphor and myth. In fact, uh, a smart man once said that myth is what never was, but always will be. If you read a John Steinbeck novel, it doesn't matter whether Tom Joad ever really lived, because there's truth and goodness and, and godlike truth and inspiration in those pages. And you can find the same thing in Scripture, in addition to the possibility of them actually being completely authentic and, and valid and historical. So what are some of the truths behind the myths? Even if you're a 100% non-believer, consider the practical value behind messages like you are a child of divine worth. Think about how the world would be if everybody respected this notion in terms of civil rights and respect and decency. We're all child of a divine father and mother. You know, prayer, even if there's no one listening on the other end, what's the value of the meditation and the reflection and the expression that comes through prayer? Faith is another word for optimism of doing something with the hope that it, something good will come about. Um, baptism represents a commitment. Um, repentance is change. I mean, that's really what repentance is. And, you know, that's something we could all do, positive change. Revelation, whether or not there's someone sending you this literal message, I believe that if you're present and listening and paying attention to people and to your environment and to the nature, that somehow messages are being sent to you that are worth listening to. And whether you want to call that directly from an anthropomorphic God or not, I believe there's power in being present and receiving revelation that's extrasensory. Service is love. Priesthood power is tapping into the power of natural law and faith, or can be. Authority and hierarchy, how oppressive it may be. There's only one thing worse that we're learning in Iraq than a dictator. And what's that? Anarchy. Anarchy. Anarchy can actually be much worse than a horrible, brutal dictator. You know, there are many people in Iraq right now who would much rather have Saddam Hussein than what they're dealing with. Um, so there is a place for authority and hierarchy, even when we sometimes wish it would all go away. Traditional families, as charged as that term is, I would be interested in hearing someone argue that the traditional family should be destroyed or isn't an important component of our society as much umbrage as we may take in what the General Relief Study President may say in general conference. 
there is still value in the traditional family that shouldn't be, you know, relegated to unimportance. Although it shouldn't be elevated always as above uh, other things, exclusively, you know, or defined in a way so narrow that it makes us uncomfortable. Gender-based roles may make you really uncomfortable, but I believe that um, sometimes gender really does matter, and it's not something that we always need to have exact equality and similarness or similitude um, within. Genealogy is simply an appreciation for one's ancestry and their history. Personal purity is clean living. Scripture study is about deep thought and meditation. A lay clergy is all about self-governance. Tithing is about sacrifice. Home teaching is just about love. Um, There are truths behind these myths. And the one thing that I have to convey, maybe most strongly, when you throw all these things away, sometimes you think you're, you're chopping down the imperfect. And sometimes you think that you're discarding what's flawed. Because then, when you chop down all those trees in the forest, because you find blemishes on each one, that somehow uh, new trees are going to spring forth that are perfect. But that's not always the way it is. And um, this is a a clip from A Man for All Seasons. It's about Sir Thomas More. In this clip, he's talking about someone who would change or defy civil law or even tear down civil law if he felt like it violated true, pure righteousness. And Sir Thomas More, even though he's a man of faith, says that sometimes law has has its place even if law is imperfect. imperfect. It's his future son-in-law that he's talking to. Thank you. And um, so when he talks about law, replace that with church and religion and see if it, this resonates at all with you.
This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast. Man's laws aren't God's. And if you cut them down and you're just a man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes. I give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. You should uh, send that to the Bush administration. <laughs> <laughs> um, no one hates more than I do the ominous warnings about how your life is going to self-destruct when you leave the church. So I don't want you to think that I'm making that case. But I am going to say that when you carelessly chop down all the trees in the forest, uh, sometimes... Uh, adversity that you would never expect will come at you. And, and those trees that would have given you shelter and comfort um, end up being not there for you in the time of great need. So I just just ask you not to always minimize that. Um, uh, and so go slowly. Don't burn bridges. Be careful who you talk to. Don't lie, but um, be careful. Don't try to shock or enlighten people with your new understandings or concerns. I've already talked about where are you going to go. Don't, you know, don't leave until you figure out a place where you likely really will be more happy. And, and many do regret uh, leaving and come back. Um, this is a point that I get in a lot of trouble with. But I, I think that part of living a healthy life is learning to accept imperfection. And you don't expect imperfection from God's one and only true church. You expect that to be the one place where you will achieve perfection. But I don't even think God has, has held that standard. In fact, if you read the Bible, um, the Bible, Michael Medved says he, knows, he believes the Bible is true simply because it's so candid in all the grotesque, horrible things that it, that it uh, tells about. And so you can't really argue that, that God um, has set us up with the expectation of perfection, even from his prophets, Judas denying Christ, or prophets and apostles, Judas denying Christ, Peter betraying Christ, uh, David committing adultery and, and murder, uh, Noah getting drunk. You know, the list is endless of prophets who are fools and Jonah running away. Um, so learning to accept imperfection is, is, a, is simply healthy living at some uh, aspect. Are you perfect? Is your spouse perfect? Is your family perfect? Is your employer perfect? Is your country? Do you resign from all these institutions when they fail to meet your pure, you know, uh, ideas of, uh, of what things should be? Do you, your, do you renounce your citizenship as a U.S. citizen um, because of the war and, and you're not feeling good about it? Uh, you could argue that they don't claim to be God's one true church, but at the same time, you know, at least this country claims to have divine inspiration and, and God's support, especially in this administration. And, um, and most importantly, the impact that they have is, is uh, unbelievably strong and powerful. And so... Um, you know, it's healthy to ask yourself when you're experiencing a problem, is this really an LDS or Mormon problem? Or is this just a human problem that manifests itself not only in this ward but elsewhere? And I, I, would suggest that, I would suggest to you that life becomes more healthy when you learn to accept imperfection. Adjust your expectations for the church, church leadership, members, the ward, and even church history. Um, don't expect more from that than what you are able to offer and what you're experiencing in your own life that you have the most control over. Um, it's important to unplug from caring about what others think of you religiously um, because being, being a, a Mormon who's maybe uh, not a conservative Orthodox Mormon requires you to 
say things or do things or not do things that would cause other people to raise their eyebrows. Um, but instead of like owning that and allowing that to oppress you, I highly suggest you gaining a level of confidence and self-respect and unplugging from the cares and the judgments of your peers within the church. It's a hard thing to do, but I believe it's a, it's a path towards healthier living, not just in the church, but in your life in general. Um, and it's an essential coping mechanism with dealing with this condition and staying in the church. And I find so many people who are angry at the church, but if you dig into their own lives, they have deep dysfunction and dissatisfaction, whether it's with themselves, with their employer, with their marriage, with their family. And the church becomes sort of the scapegoat for all the pain and the anguish that they're experiencing independent. And of course, if you leave the church and abandon and run away, that's not going to solve the problems that are independent of the church, and it may even exacerbate them. And so I would submit that look inside yourself and make sure that you are in a healthy and the same place um, before you blame all of that on, on the church. You may find that some of that is within you and will follow you wherever you go. Um, you know, a buffet Mormon or a cafeteria Mormon is kind of a pejorative. Uh, you know, this notion of picking and choosing the things that you want and don't want. And a lot of us are uncomfortable with that notion because you can't stay getting to this place where we have and do everything exactly the way you've been told to do it. And so what that means is becoming a buffet Mormon to some extent. What that means is deciding that you're going to do some things and not do others. You're going to believe some things and not believe other things. And I would ask you to consider the fact that you're not alone in that regard. That in reality, all Mormons are buffet Mormons because you can't possibly do everything that's been asked of you. And you can't believe and have a testimony of every element of the gospel because I think even the brethren aren't sure of all of the elements of doctrine um, uh, within the canon. And so everyone falls short. Instead of getting depressed about it, embrace it. I'm not encouraging this approach, approach but if push comes to shove, it's something to think about. Um, there's a great presentation at Sunstone uh, this August about how to deal with the temple recommend. Because many people want to maintain and go to the temple. And you could argue that people like us need the temple more than anyone. Um, or at least as much as anyone else. Um, uh, but they self-disqualify themselves from the temple recommend interview. Because they say, I can't commit to an anthropomorphic God. It's just a little bit too much. Or I can't commit to the restoration. Because Joseph Smith... There's just some things that really get to me. Or I can't, I can't fully commit, uh, you know, to other things. And so I would ask you to consider some things. The first is that um, there's always going to be a disconnect between whoever's interviewing you and you. You're never going to have a full agreement and understanding on what the terms mean and what the conditions are um, and, and what the doctrine and history entail. Um, and so you have to understand the setup of what the brethren themselves have offered. They could ask 10,000 questions, ask for your W-2s, and drill down and, and allow bishops full autonomy to ask additional questions and to make sure that you align perfectly with what those bishops think and say presidents think you should be feeling and thinking. But in reality, think about how they've set up the questions. These questions are intentionally vague. Joseph Smith's name never comes up in the temple questions. It says, do you have a testimony of the restoration? Just the terms themselves. Do you have a testimony of? What does that mean? Does that mean a firm and abiding conviction and knowledge? Or does that mean a faith and a hope as, as faith is described 
in Alma, a simple hope that something is true. And so um, the, va- the questions are somewhat vague. They prohibit additional questions being added. Uh, they allow you to be the ultimate judge. Nobody's perfect. And I'm sure all of you know that one bishop may disqualify you when another bishop would have let you through, depending on how you answer the questions. And so understand that the brethren have set that up that way. And all you need to do is make sure that you're comfortable with integrity answering these questions. And if you feel right before God answering these questions, in however you define the terms, I think you shouldn't necessarily disqualify yourselves from temple service. Um, uh, If you don't believe in anthropomorphic God, do you believe in a force or some type of organizing force? If you don't believe, if you worry about the historicity of Jesus, can you call him a savior just by the fact that you've lived his teachings and they've saved you from pain and anguish? If you can't sign up to everything about Joseph Smith, can you sign up to the fact that he brought truth and goodness that, that was a step forward from what traditions he came from? Um, if you don't know that Gordon B. Hinckley is the only man that God speaks to in such a literal way, can you say that he has the power within the church to lead it and is in some way inspired by God? Um, uh, you, know, you know, there are other things as well that, that you have to decide how you're going to interpret them and what they mean. Again, I never encourage lying and deception. But I would, I would ask you to make sure that you're not disqualifying yourselves um, unnecessarily. Raising children is a very tough one. Um, uh, we're raising four kids right now. A lot of people are concerned that what about teaching them dogma and doctrine that's going to be hard for them to accept, that's going to teach them biases and untruths that may poison them later. Here's how we approach it. We tell our children, mommy and daddy don't go to this church because we think this church is better than all the other churches. Um, We love this church and it's the church that we embrace and it's our heritage and faith. But don't look at this as an indictment on all the other churches and as us holding this church up as perfect. This is our faith tradition. Um, You know, talk to your kids about what they're being taught. Find out in an engaged way, just like you would do at school or a movie that they watch. What were you taught? How do you feel about that? You don't have to believe everything you're taught by a church leader or in a church class. You can decide for yourself what feels right and what doesn't. And children get this if you you give them a chance. You don't want to teach them disrespect for church leaders. Um, But you need to teach them to do what they would do anywhere, which is to make sure that what they're receiving feels right within them. Um, So if they're taught about a vengeful God that inflicts someone with a a disease um, because they didn't do quite what God said, you can tell them, you know what, you don't have to believe that part if that doesn't feel right to you in the way you look at God. Or if you don't feel this one true church thing is right for you, don't look at it that way. Look at it. This is your faith tradition. You don't have to believe the leaders are infallible because sometimes they make mistakes. You don't have to believe that our church is better than other churches. This is just the one that we choose. You don't have to believe in a bigoted God that is racist and uh, other things. And you don't have to choose between science and religion. You can teach your children these things and equip them at at an amazingly early age to be able to work through as a mature person to, to cope with some of the less than ideal things they get at church. But most importantly, don't spend your Sunday dinners deconstructing and criticizing everything that they experience at church. We've tried that. It leads to just a very negative experience. You may as well not go. So keep positive. When they come home and say, I was frustrated with this at church, show love and empathy, but then say, what did you like about church today? What did you love? And don't um, use church as a, as, a, as a means of always venting and criticizing because there's just no point. Remember that it's all about the people. And uh, 
if, don't get fix on, fixate on the doctrine and the, and the history and the theology if that's bothering you. Fixate on the relationships and getting to know members of your ward and having edifying relationships and even one-on-one relationships um, with people. Um, a lot of times we judge church membership by the 5% who are most vocal in Sunday school or Leaf Society or, or a testimony meeting. But the truth is, the average church member is a sensible, reasonable, thoughtful, compassionate person. Really, in my experience. But oftentimes, the loudmouths that speak up in, in Sunday school are the ones that we then judge the entire congregation by. And if you would take the time to get to know the membership, you would understand that that's not representative. Mormons are, by and large, good, honest, sincere people that are worth getting to know and not painted with the broad brush. Seek out like-minded folk in your ward. It was so refreshing for me to find Steve and Chris Jones in, in my ward here in Issaquah. It was almost like a lifeline for me um, in many ways. And every ward, even in North Logan, has people who can empathize and, and understand and, and talk to. And so you can find them if you want to look for them. Go to the bishop and say, who has left the church or gone inactive over cultural or historical issues? Can I be their home teacher? I've done this. I've even helped bring people back to the church because I'd go to them and say, you know what? I've been there, brother, and I understand, and you're not alone, but I need someone there to make church pleasant for me, so will you please come back? <laughs> um, it's easy to blame everything on the leadership, um, but I have people very close to me who are very close to the top leaders of the church you would be very surprised at how much change they would like to see, but don't know how to steer a 12, 13 million person organization in a fast way. And sometimes the brethren are preaching very progressive, enlightened messages, but the members aren't listening. Things like, you know, your job and your family come before your callings. They're saying that all the time now. But you'll still get people in the ward who say, never turn down a calling. And that's not what's being taught now. They're teaching simplify, simplify, simplify. Yet there's lots of people who are trying to make it still complex and burdensome. Uh, there are lots and lots of examples. And so um, understand and have empathy for the fact that it's hard to steer such a large ship. With international members and in multiple languages, five million active members, um, you know, have empathy for their position. Always protect yourselves and your loved ones. Don't set yourself up to have your child abused by a home teacher or a Boy Scout leader so that then you can get angry at the church that your child was abused. It won't be your fault, um, but at the same time, uh, you know, you should never uh, be uh, irresponsible that way. Um, you know, a lot of us go to church as if that's the place that's going to fill us. The church isn't always the place that's going to help us reach the highest levels of spirituality. Some of that burden rests on ourselves, and that's even doctrinal. Seek ye out of the best books. And so don't look to church as your sole source of spirituality. Seek out good books. Seek out nature. Seek out family time, meaningful friends, exercise, small groups of people, and supplement your spirituality. Because the church is not going to meet all your spiritual needs that way, because it can't meet everyone's needs across such a diverse um, perspective. Church is a place to serve and, and, and to, you know, not always to be served, although you will get served uh, when, when you're struggling. You know, I'll never forget when I was 
struggling in Issaquah Ward uh, and feeling really isolated, there was a member who, um, who empathized with me. And he, he called me up and he said, John, can I take you fishing? Can I take you fly fishing? And he took me to the, uh, a fishing store. He bought me a fly rod and boots and, a, and overalls. And he took me fishing. And during that fishing exercise, he said, you know what, I've been through what you're going through right now. Uh, that was the last thing I was expecting. Um, and it meant a great deal. And so look at church as a place to serve. Because where else are you going to find out about who has cancer and who's pregnant and who needs sod laid in their house? You can, you can live in a neighborhood for 10 years and never know the people right across the street from you if you live in a non-Utah area. But in the church, you meet 20 families within four weeks of living there and, and learn to find out how you can meet their needs. This is a very important point, and I know we're kind of going long, so I'll try and hurry up. A lot of people who are frustrated with the church lose common courtesy, and they treat members of the church worse than they would ever treat members of another faith. You would never go up to a Muslim and say, you know, that Koran of yours, you know, isn't all perfect, you know. And that Muhammad guy actually did a couple really interesting things. Do you want to talk about it? You never do that. You never go to a Catholic and say, hey, let's talk about that priest little thing that happened in that diocese over there. You would never do it. Yet Mormons think that they can go in front of everyone's Sunday school when we're disaffected and just blabber it all out to everybody. Well, that's just not good manners and it's not common courtesy. So don't treat LDS devout people any differently than you would anybody else. Understand the one true church position. Um, uh, successful growing churches make absolute truth claims. Churches that water down those truth claims uh, become less relevant and significant for the most part. The brethren believe it's the one true church. Um, if you look at what the reorganized church did, although I have much respect for what they did because it was a position of great integrity, Look at their membership now after they said, well, maybe it's not about blood descent and maybe Joseph was a polygamist after all. Uh, we were wrong for 150 years. You know, a, a few decades later, their membership's down by 70%. It's not necessarily realistic to expect the churches to act in a way that's going to destroy themselves. And move past this binary worldview of it's, um, you know, either in or out of the church. And, and probably the most important thing I can convey is seek to understand why are the brethren acting the way they're acting? Why are bishops acting the way they're acting? Why are relief study presidents and priesthood leaders acting the way they're acting? These people were raised in devout homes. They served missions at an early age. Um, they've had little time to really reflect or study history. They sincerely believe. Um, past attempts at, from the church's perspective to be open have often backfired. Is it, is it realistic to expect them to undermine their own authority um, and apologize for every little thing that happens all the time? And understand that they're managing for the many, not for the few. And if they were to come out with all these apologies and let's talk openly about all the history, yeah, it may help 1%. It may help us. It may help us 1%. Although it may push many of us out because it just becomes a validation and a confirmation of all the things that bother us. But then what's it going to do to the other 99% that didn't know about this stuff and isn't equipped to deal with it? So you have to understand their dilemma in not being able to do everything you would like them to do. And understand that when someone's an orthodox religious person, there's often a reason. Maybe they're fearful of death. Maybe they've had a death in the family and sincerely hope to see that person again someday. Maybe they're depressed or addicted to something. Maybe they've been divorced and are lonely. And to just sort of 
you know, tell them it's all a fraud or to challenge the fundamental underpinnings of their faith is like running up to a four-year-old and saying, ha, Santa Claus, did you know he's not really true? <laughs> I just thought I'd tell you. Um, it's not very respectful. And so if somebody is even devout and obnoxious, chances are there's a good reason why. And if you got to know them and love them, you'd find out that they deserve respect. Um, I, won't, uh, I, w- I won't get into James Fowler's stages of faith, but know that um, this, this thing that we're going through is something that many people in many faiths have experienced. Stage three being this notion of everything in the world makes sense, all the pieces fit, um, you know, you or someone in your community have all the answers, and your thinking has really come from the authority figures within your tradition. But then, oftentimes, a life experience will cause you to acknowledge other uh, perspectives as valid. And, and maybe um, you begin to pull apart your beliefs. It's kind of like uh, the saying that, you know, the water may have certain qualities, but the fish is likely to be the last person to actually be able to discover them and describe them. Why? Because the water is all the fish has ever known. Um, and so, as you begin to pull apart your beliefs, you start taking responsibility And it can lead to anger and bitterness and resentment. Um, But there's also this danger of falling a bit too in love with your own positions. But there's this fifth stage that I would encourage all of you to strive for. And that's realizing that there's deep and meaning in the universe beyond rationalism um, and humanism. Uh, That there is, you can reimmerse yourselves in finding value in myth and tradition and imperfection and paradox. And that can become, as I mentioned before, some of the most transcendent states to become. Um, and, and so I would encourage you to use this situation as a way to become even more developed. And as I've met people uh, in the Sunstone community who typify this, I think of people like Molly, and um, I don't mean to embarrass you, or Bonner, uh, or Dan, or uh, you know, Armin Moss, or Bill Bradshaw, uh, or Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, or Darius Gray. Do you know people who are active in the church who just seem wise and compassionate and amazingly profound. Um, rarely in my experience are these the people who got angry and left. These are the people who know everything that we know, but have found a way to deal with it all, have transcended it, and have decided to stay. These are the people that I want to hang around with. These are the people that make me want to be a better person. And I would challenge all of you and myself to seek to try and become this type of person. A great essay to read is Why the Church is as True as the Gospel. And there's this last song I want to share with you, if you'll allow me to, that in my mind captivates where I'm trying to get to. It represents a place um, where it goes from viewing things in a level three binary worldview to to, to a a place uh, of much more transcendence and love. And it's from a man named Peter Mayer, and the song's called Holy Now.
I guess I'll just end with my testimony that I have a, a strong belief and a conviction that that um, there is a, a God or a force or some type of meaning and purpose to this existence. Um, that the teachings of Jesus are inspired and lead you to a more fulfilled and a happy life. That the Book of Mormon is a is transcending inspirational document um, and inspired. 
Um, that Joseph Smith um, was brilliant and a genius and in many ways incredibly inspirational and uh, um, taught incredible truths. Uh, President Hinckley and the church um, have much inspiration and good that have benefited my life in in amazing ways. Um, And uh, and to me... um, and to me are things that are that are worth keeping. And so uh, for those who are interested in this path, it's not for everyone. I encourage you to keep going to church, even when it's hard. Because it's hard. Keep praying. Keep reading the scriptures. As mundane as those things are often as the Sunday school answers. Stay open. Uh, because changes happen and light comes when you never would expect it. Um, I've seen it happen with many, many people. Um, make a difference by staying. Build credit in your church by serving. And then when you build up credit because you've been there at the service activities and helped out Brother Jones and Sister Smith, then spend that credit judiciously in ways that, that improve people's lives, not just that shocks them or uh, makes them feel uh, defensive. And you can change hearts and minds one at a time to, to help people come to a more enlightened place. Yes, this path isn't for everyone. It takes lots of work. Um, You really have to love people to want to engage on this path. And fasten your seatbelts because it's hard. Um, But in my experience so far, it's been worth it. There are a lot of resources that can help. Why the Church is True is the Gospel is a great essay. What the Church Means to People Like Me by Richard Paul. Um, A book called For Those Who Wonder. There's a website called New Order Mormon that that can help. I've written an essay or two that you can find on my blog. if any of you are interested. And Sun Sun and Dialogue and James Fowler's Stages of Faith are all things that I recommend. And I won't play my last song because we're out of time. Um, uh, or I, I can play it uh, for, for those of you who, who uh, want to stay around. But um, I just uh, thank you for your time. And I hope you found something today that's been of value and of meaning. Um, so that's it. Thank you.